up, everybody? My people, it's nice to be with you. Turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 2. That would be great if you could get there. And we're going to read together in not too long. If I can just kind of make my own little plug for today. Um, this has been a practice of the community of celebration for a while. And in, just in case you haven't been tracking with this story, the community of celebration is a uh, Benedictine religious order of the Episcopal Church that's down there on Franklin Avenue. So Chelsea and I live in the, some of the row houses that belong to this religious order. Um, they have an amazing history that emerged out of the Jesus People Movement um, and then ended up in Aliquippa, where they've really been in a rhythm of daily prayer for like 38 years. And um, a lot of what we have experienced as a TAB family, as a greenhouse network, I really believe is connected to that story of prayer. Um, and now Chelsea and I are living with them. We're helping care for them, but also the um, transition of their properties to the greenhouse network is very much underway. So there's just uh, a lot of administration and legal stuff attached to that. Uh, they'll be remaining on the property for as long as they can, and we'll be caring for them, but the properties are transferring to the greenhouse network. And it's not just properties they're transferring. We've also been prayerfully asking, like, what parts of this story do we want to just continue to keep alive? And, you know, home base for the gospel tab, I don't have to tell you in our services is kind of spontaneous. Um, creating room for spontaneous prayer and praise and prophecy. Um, but we've also learned a lot from the community of celebration and uh, the way they practice what we would call contemplative prayer, but just ways of acknowledging God's presence, things like silence and liturgy. And that really has impacted a lot of our leaders here at the Gospel Tab and in the Greenhouse Network. And today is a beautiful example of that. They set up an icon and there's candles and you chant scripture and sit there silently. And this is one of the practices that we've kind of decided, yeah, we want to continue this on the property. So please come and experience it. I'll be there on Wednesday night. I would love to see you. And I think you'll be blessed by it, but also it's just also just being part of this beautiful story that's unfolding. Like you will bless the community of celebration by participating. Um, and they're going to be here, I believe. Some of their musicians will be here uh, for the Good Friday service. So it's just a really cool story. Um, and so I just encourage you to participate in that. So um, I, I get to kick off this First Samuel series. Have you guys been hearing that you're entering a First Samuel series? I don't know if you have or not. Surprise, you're in First Samuel. <laughs> so, um, so we're today starting a new series in First Samuel uh, that I believe will go through Pentecost Sunday for all of you. So it'll go through um, you know, late May, early June. And we're especially going to look at the ministry of the prophet Samuel. We're not going to get to cover this whole book in the series, um, but we're going to take it initially through uh, the anointing of King David. And your preaching team here is going to be walking you through this. Uh, God took me in a little bit of a different direction to kick off this, this series for you. Uh, last weekend, I was preaching a couple of times at a conference for the Christian Missionary Alliance for Youth and Children's Workers. And I said yes to this opportunity for a number of reasons. And 
And God had given me a message for like the morning uh, plenary session. And I, I felt like the Lord told me, um, I will give you the second message after you get to the conference. So I went with one message and um, worshiped and delivered what I had. And then I felt like the Lord gave me the second message um, and I delivered it. And I also felt like it was for you guys because um, it was out of first Samuel here at the, at the beginning. So it's a little bit different than what I anticipated when I got on the calendar for this, this uh, preaching date. It was a little bit different than what I expected, but I think it's what God has for us today. So let me introduce you a little bit to 1 Samuel, first, first of all. Um, we don't exactly know who wrote this book of Scripture. Um, we can identify what tradition it's in. So I don't know if you've ever heard before that like people will rattle off these things. Like the Bible was written by 40 authors. It's more like 40 known authors. Actually, the Bible is probably pieced together in, in fragments by probably hundreds of people, actually, that the Spirit of God was working through um, and piecing things together. So sometimes authorship is like really clear. We know which human hand it came through. Other times, not so much. But we do know that this is, sits in a tradition of Israel's history um, telling. And Israel received this written word at some point documenting part of their history. Um, to kind of tell you where it is in the story of Israel, you may remember that Israel had been slaves in Egypt after the death of Joseph, had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. In time, God raised up Moses um, and used signs and wonders through Moses to deliver Israel uh, from their captivity, they go into the desert where they meet God at Mount Sinai. They receive the law there. And then because of their disobedience, they wander in the wilderness for many years until God eventually calls them into the promised land that he had promised to them. And so they go into the promised land in, under the leadership of Joshua and there's still just a federation of tribes. So I can't overstate how unique and outrageous and just like never seen before this would have been in the ancient Near East um, for an ancient people not to have a king, right? Like everyone had a king. I mean, we're nowhere near in human history the advent of democracy or something like that, right? Like up until like the age of the enlightenment out of which like American democracy and other democracies were born, everybody had a king, right? Like it's just how it went, you know, except for Israel who doesn't name a king and just goes into the promised land as a federation of tribes um, with God's presence in the midst of them. But if you read the book of Judges, which is one of the most violent, um, not rated G books of the Bible. Um, you see that after they got into the promised land, just utter chaos um, descended on them. And they're in this terrible cycle of being attacked by empires and other groups of people. And then God raises up a judge. He raises up these men and women who will deliver Israel. Um, and then they descend again into sin and someone else attacks them. And if you were to like try to draw out the book of Judges, it would be kind of like a cycle, but a downward spiral kind of cycle. 
And the end of the book of Judges ends with like just some of the worst stories in the Old Testament, like stories we surely do not tell in Sunday school. You know, maybe we should. But they're just awful, awful stories and so violent and so twisted and so confusing that they're hard to make sense of, you know, even still. But that's the point of Judges is to give us a picture of where Israel has ended up at this point in their history. And it's right after this, in this kind of dark, lost season of the nation of Israel, that God raises up a prophet named Samuel. And of course, his story features prominently in First and Second Samuel, the raising up of this prophet. One time, it's amazing where God will take you when you're following him on mission. One time I was sitting in the Aliquippa Dunkin' Donuts with a Sudanese man who had recently left Islam. Go figure. You know, and we're sitting there and he was talking about why he had left his faith. Um, He hadn't left it for another religion. He had left it just to become secular. Brilliant guy. And um, and he was telling me uh, what he thought about Jesus, because, of course, like the Quran gives testimony to Jesus. And as a prophet, the Quran even teaches Jesus's virgin birth. And um, he said, you know, my problem with religion is is that every time religion becomes dead, God raises up prophets. And he said, and I do think Jesus was one of those prophets. Now, we would confess here that Jesus is more than a prophet, but we would also affirm that he is a prophet, right? He's not less than a prophet, for sure. Um, And he says, so Jesus raises up these prophets, and he said, the problem is that, that religious systems do not listen to the prophets, And so they just continue to descend into immorality then because they just become self-preserving and they don't listen to the pride. And he had, he was done with it, you know, and, but it was interesting. I really had hope that this, I really could tell God was working in this guy's life because he was kind of in this place where he was walking away from the religious system, but you could tell he still had an ear for the prophets. And I thought God's going to get a hold of this guy's heart, (laughs) you know, like, because his ear is still open to the prophets. And so this is one of those times when God raises up this prophet, Samuel, and a bunch of things happen in this story. Um, God reestablishes his presence among the people. God reestablishes his voice among the people. And First and Second Samuel are really books about the kingdom of God because it also is the story of the establishment of Israel's monarchy. So the first kings emerge in this story, and they are pictures, for good and bad, they're pictures of what God's kingdom is like and what God's kingdom is not like, right? And where the story goes after First and Second Samuel is kind of the downward spiral of the kings, right? How our attempts at, at trying to live and be and act like the kingdom of God fall so short. And these books should leave us longing for a pure kingdom, right? And a pure king. And we're going to talk about that today. So I'm just going to summarize for you the first chapter. I'm actually not preaching on the first chapter, which there's so much good stuff here. You know, every time we do a series like this, there's just so much stuff we don't get to cover. Um, but instead, I want to read to you the words of a woman named Hannah. You know there are women authors in the Bible, Right? So chapter two, uh, it comes from her mouth, right? And I want to read to you Hannah's words, actually. And 
um, and let that speak to us today. But let's, let's like work up to getting there. So here's the context. In this dark season of Israel's history, there's this man, Elkanah, who has two wives. One of his wives has been able to bear children. The other, Hannah, has not. And you can read about it in 1 Samuel 1, but this leads uh, to Hannah um, one day when they had gone to the tabernacle. Remember, at this point in Israel's history, there isn't a temple. A temple hasn't been built yet. They're still worshiping in the tabernacle, this tent um, that they carried through the wilderness during their, their journey. And, and so they go to the tabernacle to make their you know, sacrifices and Hannah's distressed because um, she just has, feels like she has no future and no value without being able to, to bear children. Um, she's crying out to God so intently that the high priest, who is a character in this story that you'll learn about as you go along, but Eli, the high priest, thinks that she's drunk, kind of rebukes her for coming into the tabernacle drunk. Um, and she explains she's not drunk. She's just desperate for God to work. She's just desperate for God to show up. She's crying out to God to give her a son. Eli actually speaks a word of blessing to her. And not long after this, she becomes pregnant and gives birth to this boy named Samuel. And out of the overflow, the gratitude of her heart, she decides to dedicate this boy, Samuel, to the Lord. And so she takes him back to the tabernacle at some point. And gives him to the care of Eli, the high priest, uh, where he will be raised around the things of God um, until the word of the Lord comes to him in 1 Samuel 3. Uh, we're told in 1 Samuel 3, which we're not going to read out of today, that this was a time in Israel's history when the word of the Lord was rare among the people. This was not a time when people were regularly hearing the word of the Lord. Very interestingly, it, it's also interesting to note that it also says in 1 Samuel 3 that Samuel, although he had been raised in the temple, slept, I'm sorry, in the tabernacle, raised in the tabernacle, slept in the tabernacle, been around the sacrifices of the tabernacle, that he did not know God until the word of the Lord came to him directly. And then he knew who this God was. It was speaking to him. But all of that's in 1 Samuel 3. Um, where we're going to read today, and we're going to do it together, is after Samuel has been dropped off at the temple, he's, he's been dedicated to the Lord. I keep saying temple, tabernacle. Been dedicated to the, to the Lord there in the care of Eli, the high priest. And then there's this recorded prophetic utterance from Hannah. Um, this woman who met the Lord and who God delivered her. And it's in song form. It's in poetry. In a lot of your English Bibles, it's probably offset. When you see that in your Bibles, kind of that offset type, it's because we know it's poetry. It's been translated into English, but it's poetry. It's probably a song. Um, sometimes, like we will sing spontaneously here. Sometimes that's what the Spirit of God does through people when they prophesy. And it's like Hannah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just prophesies this song. Now, here's a little bit of trivia and it's okay if you don't get it. It's totally fine wherever you are in your journey of like learning about the scriptures. But as we read this together, I want you to think what other portion of scripture uh, 1 Samuel 2 reminds you of. Um, because it should remind you of another portion of scripture. So let's listen for that together. If you'd stand to your feet in honor of God's word through Hannah. 
It says, then Hannah prayed and said, and then let's read in unison together. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes live. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. And my one point this morning as we pray together, you can just stay standing for one moment. My one point this morning is... I need to see it because I'm not going to be able to say it. When a word from the Lord is hard to find, look for him to speak an upside down word from the weak places. Let's pray together. So Lord, we stand in the hearing of your word, ready to receive what you have for us. And in a time when we need a word from you, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear not only what you're speaking, but from where you're speaking it. And help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. Uh, so here's the trivia piece. Totally okay if you don't know. Wherever you are in your journey with the scriptures is great. Um, but what portion of scripture might that remind you of? Can you piece it together? Where in the New Testament especially? Does anyone want to take a guess? Yeah, Mary's song, right? So if you read from Luke chapter 1, and we're not going to read from there today, but if you read from Luke chapter 1, um, and by the way, you could also make connections from Hannah's song to other portions of Scripture, Isaiah, for instance. There's some other places. But it especially, because it's coming from a woman who has just given birth to a special child and now has this prophetic utterance, um, it ought to remind us as followers of Jesus of the word that came through Mary in Luke chapter 1, after the announcement of the angel Gabriel that she was going to give birth to the boy Jesus, right? And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to make a connection here. Um, Hannah's song is a good passage for us to start in with 1 Samuel. By the way, I think Kiara is preaching at the other um, campus, and I believe we coordinated a little bit today. I think she's actually preaching from 1 Samuel 1. So um, if you listen to both of our sermons, you'll actually get 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2 if you listen to it. But 1 Samuel 2 is a good introduction to really the whole story of 1 Samuel 
Because as Hannah prophesies at the dedication of her boy, um, she says things that are going to like carry the quality of Samuel's ministry for the rest of his life. Like she's describing themes that are going to be evident for the rest of his life. Um, She's describing characteristics of how the word of the Lord is going to come through him. How prophecy is going to be formed in him. And there's a lot of things I could point out to you from Hannah's song, but we're just going to kind of look at this from a thousand feet up for a second. I want you to notice the upside down quality of the prophecy that comes through Hannah about her boy and about what the word of the Lord is going to be like as it rests on her boy and as it's spoken through her boy. That's going to have this quality of turning the world upside down. That the poor are going to be rich and the rich are going to be poor. That the fool are going to be hungry and the hungry are going to be full. That the powerful are going to be weak and the weak are going to be powerful. That princes are going to be brought down and the poor are going to be lifted up. There's this theme in Hannah's prophecy that when, when the word of the Lord comes through Samuel, everything's going to turn upside down. And spoiler alert, but you're going to see this right away in 1 Samuel 3 because the first time God gives Samuel a word, he goes to Eli the high priest and he basically says, this boy basically says to Eli the high priest, hey, this religious thing you're doing, bruh, it ain't it, All right? <laughs> it's like, this ain't it, right? And he basically prophesies this word to this priest that says this religious system is dead and empty and actually God's about to turn the whole thing upside down. That's a really dire prophecy that he gives to Eli the priest. But this same thing happens. If you see how Samuel interacts with Israel's first king, Saul, who you'll be introduced to in a few weeks, you'll see this same kind of upside down quality that what As the word of the Lord comes through him to Israel's first king, that it's this unexpected upside down word. And then when God, spoiler alert, when God rejects Saul as king, um, it's this unexpected thing that Samuel does to anoint this shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, David, as the next king. And so this is what Samuel's ministry is going to look like. It's what the word of the Lord is going to look like through him, that as God works in this man's life, in this boy's life, that he's turning everything upside down. He's messing up all of our categories. What's up is down. What's down is up. What seems right actually turns out to be wrong. What's wrong, what we would think is wrong, to pick the youngest as Israel's second king, that feels wrong, but God's going to do it, right? And so there's this upside down quality to what's happening. That makes sense because First and Second Samuel are books about the kingdom of God wanting to manifest on the earth. Right? And God's kingdom, and we especially know this from Jesus, that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Mary's song is the way it is. It has the same upside down quality if you read it in Luke chapter 1. Because as she prophesies over her boy and what God is doing, um, she's prophesying about this man, Jesus, who's going to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God to us, a kingdom that turns upside down all of our categories, that is the opposite of what we would expect. So there's this thing in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New that when God is on the move, when God's kingdom is showing up on the earth, when God is establishing his kingdom, 
His kingdom is so otherworldly. It is so not like the kingdoms we create. It is so not like the way we think. It is so not like the things we're drawn to and the things we value about power and money and leaders and people. It is so different than what we think about these things that consistently when God's kingdom shows up on the earth, it shows up as an upside down kingdom. We're actually the ones that are upside down. But because his kingdom is invading this, it feels like his kingdom is upside down, right? The problem is actually with us, not with him. But God's kingdom is so different that when it shows up among humans, get this, it can actually feel like it's wrong. you believe that? That when God's kingdom shows up among humans, it's why, I know I'm painting in broad brushstrokes here, but it's why the Pharisees, who were the protectors and purifiers of an established religion, were not able to recognize the kingdom of God when that kingdom was in their midst and that kingdom's king was in their midst because it actually felt wrong. If you don't believe me, then consider how the Pharisees actually accused Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the sinless one, the image of the invisible God, of being possessed by the devil himself. This is what it felt like to them. Like this cannot be the Messiah. It actually has to be Satan. Except that it was God's kingdom and God's king invading the earth. Right? Um, this is what God's kingdom is like. It makes what's wrong right. It makes what's broken whole. It takes what's chaotic and brings it into order. But it does it in a way along God's own definitions. Right? One thing we learn in First and Second Samuel is that it is God's intent to bring this kingdom to earth. Um, it's interesting how merciful God is in First and Second Samuel because at the beginning of this story, Israel has no king. And it's, it actually seems like God is not interested in them having a human king, but they feel too insecure for that. They need something to cling to. It's like God's presence in their midst isn't enough. So they end up asking God for a king, and Samuel goes to the Lord about it, and they end up giving him a king. Um, they end up giving Israel a king. Um, and I think it's because, I think God makes room for it because it is in God's heart to establish his kingdom on the earth. But I think he also wants Israel to know, listen, if we can establish human kings, but you're going to be left wanting another king. You're going you're to realize that what you think is right and what you think is just and what you think is holy is going to end up robbing you, actually. It's going to end up leaving you hungry. It's going to end up leaving you wanting. And by the end of the, the kind of span of Israel's kings, we're left longing for another king, right, that can come. This is our connection to Luke chapter 1, that eventually another king did come. And through another woman, a same kind of prophecy came. It's like when God is giving something of his kingdom to the earth, it turns everything upside down. Except this king actually brought the kingdom, right? This king actually did it. And, and because he actually did it, the reaction of people was a thousand times worse. We actually killed him, right? Because it was so upside down. It was so unrecognized. Like, the purer God's kingdom gets among us, the more it messes with us, 
right? The more it messes with our cat, the more it's like something, sometimes especially among the religious, there's a, there's a word of warning in here for us. Sometimes especially among the religious, we don't recognize it as God because we would rather preserve and protect our religion. You're going to find in 1 Samuel 3 that the first thing God speaks through Samuel is a word of rebuke to Eli, the high priest. And man, it's a hard word. It's like God's going to turn this whole thing upside down. It was a day of perfunctory, Steve used that word, rituals and religion. It was a day where the priests were lighting the fire in the tabernacle, this picture of unceasing prayer before God, but there was no fire of God's presence. It was, it was a day uh, where Eli's family is abusing the people from the tabernacle. His own sons are corrupt and actually abusing the people from the place of the tabernacle. And in that place, God raises up a prophet, a boy, to say, this ain't it. Now, now let's think about this. Why would God choose a boy? Well, it makes sense that an upside-down word would come through an unlikely place. If God is making the weak strong and the strong weak and the rich poor and the poor rich, if he's turning everything upside down, it would make sense that a purifying word from the Lord wouldn't come through Eli the high priest, but from a boy who in 1 Samuel 3 can't even recognize the voice of the Lord, like needs help, even understanding that it's God who is speaking to him. It makes sense that in dry times, in sinful times, in times when it feels like there's no hope, in times when it feels like everything is falling apart, in times when religion is dead and perfunctory and ritualistic and just God's presence isn't in the midst of it, it makes sense that in those times a word from the Lord would come because he always sends his word. If you don't believe me, in the end he sent Jesus, who himself is the word of God. He will always send a word to us in these dry times. But if you want to look for where it's going to emerge from, don't turn your eyes to the places of power and privilege, especially in the religious system. Look to the margins. Look to the weak places. Look to a boy who is being raised in the tabernacle. Look to a boy born to a woman in a town called Bethlehem. Look for that infant that the the powers can't recognize, that the principalities want to kill. But shepherds know. Shepherds can recognize that he's the one sent from God. That's where the word from the Lord emerges. It emerges from these places on the edges. I think about this because I do wonder if today we aren't in just a similar kind of time. Man, we need a word from the Lord. On one hand, there are people claiming to have a word from the Lord everywhere. And on the other hand, it's like life doesn't come to God's people through those. It's crazy how we prophesy along the lines of our own power and our own privilege. How we prophesy along the lines of our own preservation. But many times when God's word comes, it doesn't prophesy that. It actually prophesies the the upside down, turning everything over. Right? And so we're in a time where it's like we need a word from the Lord. And you know what I mean even on a personal level? I know I've said this before. When it feels like the word of the Lord is rare, 
man, we need a word from the Lord because just a word from the Lord, just one look, a word from the Lord will carry us through a whole season. You know this. A word from the Lord will give us hope for a whole season of our life. For a whole generation, a word from the Lord can hold us, right? If we just hear him, right? If we just know what he's doing, if we just know what he's saying, right? Then a word from the Lord can hold us through. I don't know if you know this, but we live in a time in the North American church, I'll say especially America and Canada, of just like things are catastrophically falling apart. I've like seen a lot in the last two years. And I'm saying this to you, not just from like reading, I'm saying it like as a witness. I was, I was at a gathering not that long ago at a seminary that at one time was considered like a pillar of American evangelicalism or something that now can barely keep its doors open. And we were there, by the way, it's the seminary that the church growth movement, I don't know if any of this will make sense to all of you, but just track with me for a second. The church growth movement, basically the science and the theology of learning to make our churches really big, it, it emerged from this seminary. This seminary, like, it grew from there, right? Um, and now it can barely keep its doors open. And someone, I'm not going to say his name, but if I said his name, you would, some of you at least would know him and you've read his books. But an insider to this whole religious system said to about 30 of us there that were gathered, said, this whole thing is falling apart so rapidly. And I'm telling you as an insider, it's way worse than what you can see. Um, the things that we've thought God is in, it's turning out he's abandoned. Um, the things we thought would save us, it turns out end up wanting. The things, I mean, this is... This is just what's happening right now. And I want to be clear that I'm not discouraged at all. Because I think God's sending a new word. And I wonder what God is saying in this time. Last week, I was talking to these youth and children's workers. And let me just draw, you can take a bunch of applications from this probably when I'm saying to you. But let me just take one application for you. It makes sense to talk about this passage to children and youth workers because it's about a boy, right? Like the weak place that God speaks from this, speaks from in this passage is a boy named Samuel. And Hannah is able to recognize and prophesize, right, over her boy, that it's this child, not the strong and the powerful, but the child that the word of the Lord would come from, right? Um, and it makes me think about what God is doing in the generations today. It makes me think about where the word of the Lord might come from. And I said this to this group of youth and children's workers last week. I said, our goal cannot be to like, I don't know, keep our kids in the church. And listen, there's whole books, whole conferences, whole, like whole studies about how we can keep our kids in the church. And here's, here's the problem with that. God isn't just here, friends, to preserve our church. Or it's like preserve our religious institutions. He's here for a kingdom, right? That's why he's showing up on the earth. He's showing up for a kingdom. 
See, the Pharisees couldn't recognize that the kingdom was in their midst because they gave all their time and thought and money to preserving a dead religion. And so they couldn't see it when it was like among them, right? And not only that, they were purifiers of that dead religion. They spent all their time thinking, like our conferences and books do today, about how to make this dead religion better, right? About how to make this thing work better and operate better and maybe be attractive enough to keep our youth and children in it, right? And I know a lot of parents, just to speak to parents and grandparents in this room, I know a lot of parents that if it's like if we just kept our kids in the church, we'd be happy, right? If we just kept them coming, if we just kept them, right? Meanwhile, this boy gets dropped off at church and has to like live in it to the youth in the room. At least that hasn't happened to you, right? This is a, like live in it, like grow up in it. And the first time God speaks through him, his word to the church, his word to the tabernacle is, this isn't it. See, God raises up the next generation through Samuel to be people of the kingdom, not to preserve and protect a dead and dying religion. And I wonder what God is doing in our time. I wonder what God is saying in our time. In younger generations, I was encouraging these youth leaders. I said, if God's word came through your youth group today in a way that looked at your church and said, this ain't it, guys. This ain't it. Would we be willing to hear that? Would we be willing to do what the Lord was saying? Would we, or would, would we become the critics? Would we want them to fit inside of our thing? Or could we trust that the kingdom of God comes through children? That the kingdom of God comes through boys like Samuel, came through a boy like Jesus. I wasn't going to share all this. This is going to take me over for service, but I haven't taken you over for so long. So buckle up. Buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, so l- let me just share this with you. I, I, it sounds like, I don't know, I haven't been here, you know, for a lot of services, obviously, but it sounds to me like you've gotten some updates on how a few of us went down to this thing at Asbury. I want to be clear, first of all, like I'm going to share some things, but um, I'm just not the kind of person that would just like chase an experience in some other city or some other church. Or, and let me tell you why. It's because I was at Asbury for like three or four days. Everything I saw there, I've seen here in Western Pennsylvania. Saw healings there, I've seen healings here. Um, I saw prophecy there, I've seen prophecy. I've seen fervency in worship there, I've seen fervency in worship here. Um, I, it was amazing to see youth worship there. I was preaching, speaking at our district junior high youth retreat in October. I watched those kids sing just the name of Jesus for like over an hour. Um, Just adore him. You know, 13 year olds. So everything I've seen there, I've I've seen here, right? And so I say that to say, you don't need to like drive to the next city or drive to the next preacher. If God tells you to, then do it. But you don't have to do that like to find God. Like he's you can uncover him where, he, where you're at. You can uncover him in your neighborhood, in your school. You can find what he's doing. That being said, if God tells you to go, then you should go. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but you know, 10 of us ended up there. It sounds like you've heard some of it, 10 or 11. 
through this crazy set of circumstances that I just couldn't have even planned for. And we end up at this place where God is moving in this peculiar way. And my favorite thing about it was that, especially as it wore on, this unceasing worship, just night and day kind of worship, it was led by Gen Z. It was Gen Z that was preaching and prophesying. It was Gen Z that was worshiping. Honestly, I learned a lot about Gen Z. And you, and you know how it wasn't just because I was among them for those days. It's because I was actually, <laughs> it's crazy when God's presence manifests in a certain way in a room, it's so, it becomes so tangible. But I was watching God minister to Gen Z. I'm like, oh, this is how God's going to do it. Like, this is how God's going to. And listen, not perfect at all. And you know, if you know me, you know I'm not against being thoughtful at all. But I did find it interesting that as this thing emerges, the first thing, old millennial, I'm an old millennial, all right? Millennials and Gen Xers and above want to do is become critics. It's like, oh, we know how God shows up. Oh, well, is there enough preaching? It's too much singing. It's here we are from a distance, like nitpicking. And what God is doing among Gen Z, because we don't believe that God would show up in people younger than us. We don't believe that the word of the Lord would come through children. We don't believe that God in this time would speak through teenagers or college students. Most of my time was spent there praying for people ages 16 through 23. And just watching like God work in the movement, it felt like, oh, this is how God is going to work in this generation. Now, I have, I've shared this with some leaders. This is probably, I'm just going to share it with you. Strange experience about how we ended up down there. A, about a year ago, I had a dream. I don't, you've heard me say, I don't have very many spiritual dreams. I had a dream, hands down, the clearest dream I've ever had in my life. Hands down. And when I woke up right away, I texted, I was texting people about it because I knew it was from the Lord. I'm not going to be able to tell you everything about the dream, but let me give you the gist of it. I was in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And I was there with Jake Furman. And we had set up camp in the city, um, outside in this city park where all of these homeless people and drug addicted people were hanging out. You know what it felt like, like Christian and Grant, when we were in Belglade and we were waiting in line to get into that, um, that soup kitchen? Remember just the craziness of that scene? Those like, just people just kind of just really obviously, visibly broken. Isaac, you were there. Just really visibly broken, right? But they had these big palm branches that were really green. And I thought, oh, there's life. That was the thought I had. It's very clear that Jake and I had set up camp here. That we had like made our home here among this group of people. I look over the park in my dream and I see a church that's decrepit and falling apart. It clearly hasn't been used for a long time. And Jake and I walk up to it and there's a plaque on it. And it says, General William Booth, holiness unto the Lord. General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army movement. A person who in a time... Uh, where religion was dead and dying and stale, God rose up the word of the Lord from the poor. 
and General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and Catherine Booth, his wife, were able to identify that the word of the Lord was coming from the slums of places like London and started to let churches emerge from these places, right? Um, And holiness unto the Lord was kind of one of the calls. It's still, if you visit Salvation Army churches, you'll often see that phrase somewhere on their building or in their sanctuary. But it was also a call in that time period, a little bit of history here, in that time period of Christian history when God was birthing revivals to do two things, to send people on mission and also to call the church back to holiness. It was a time in the late 1800s when God was reestablishing his presence among the church and was calling his people back to himself. And there's a set of what we call the holiness revivals. The Christian Missionary Alliance was actually born out of those revivals as well, along with the Salvation Army and some other groups. And it was a common phrase that was used, holiness unto the Lord. Um, we belong to God so fully that if he sends us anywhere, including out of the structures that we're comfortable with, that we'll trust that God has us, right? That God is leading us and we'll say yes to him. And so I see this. It's clearly a church that's closed down that at one time had experienced these kinds of revival. General William Booth, Holiness Unto the Lord. And there's this giant tree growing out of the window of one of the churches, massive with, out of the, one of the windows of the church, massive with all these boughs. And I said to Jake, I said, let's, um, let's take a nap in, these, in this tree. So we get on different boughs of the tree, fall asleep in the shade of this tree that's coming out of the church. I actually had the thought in the dream, oh, there's still life coming out of this dying church. We fell asleep, and then I woke up, and I, in the dream, I woke up to see the sky and the boughs of the tree over me, and there's black smoke coming over me. I thought, something's on fire. And I look, and the church is on fire. And it's burning down, and I'm aware of it because homeless people have made their home inside this church, and they were cold, so they started a fire. I don't know if you know, but like this happens in Aliquippa all the time. The people who don't have homes in the winter move into abandoned buildings, and we have a lot of fires that come because they're trying to keep themselves warm, right? Burns a good number of our buildings down. And so, so this is happening now to the church, these homeless people, and I'm, all of a sudden I realize like whatever is happening here is done. Right, And so we jump off and we go back to like where we had made camp among the homeless people. In the dream, I was so nervous that people were going to think I burnt the church down. And I, it was like I heard God's voice in the dream, the fire department showing up. He was like, you didn't burn it down. I burn it down through the poor. And so let me burn it down. Right Now here's the crazy thing about that dream. It impacted me, and I've been processing it. There's a lot of different dimensions to it. The gist that I thought when I woke up, I thought out of sibling relationships in the kingdom, the Philadelphia city of brotherly love, I was with Jake, out of brother and sister relationships, God is going to birth revival. He's going to make our home among the poor. He's going to make our home among the margins, right? And there is a season where there's still life coming out of a dead and dying church. And so it's okay for us to take shade in that. It's okay for us to appreciate and experience the life that's coming out of a dead and dying church. But it's like I heard the Lord saying, eventually, I'm going to burn the whole thing down. And it's really not your responsibility. It's that I'm going to do it through the poor. Because they're going to so come inside the church that they're just going to mess everything up for you guys. They're going to mess up your structures. You're not going to know what to do. They're going to They're going to burn it down. 
And just like when Samuel has a word for Eli that's like, hey, the whole thing's going to burn down. I wonder if we're able to receive a word from the Lord that's like even the things that we've taken shade in. What if God wants to burn it down? What if God, okay, what if God wants to, what if God wants to do something else, right? Are, are we going to be worried about how we look in that? Are we going to try to prevent what the word of the Lord is doing? Are we going to recognize that from weak places a word of the Lord comes? Here's a crazy part of that dream. My friend who preached the initial message at Asbury that that whole thing started from, that's how I was connected to it because I'm friends with him. It's just crazy. But he's calling me and he's like, Joel, we need you like now. Like, please send a team. Like, we're overwhelmed when you help. Please just get down here. And so on our way down, I remember this dream and I look it up. I'm with Jake Furman in the car, by the way, with our district superintendent, Dave Noggle, who was here for Steve's installation. Dave offered to drive us, which was nice because then he paid for gas. And <laughs> take shade in the structures. <laughs> but as we go down, I'm like, wait a second, when did I have that dream? And I look it up in my phone because I had texted people about it. It was a year to the day that we were driving to Asbury. We get to Asbury. I don't know if you know this, but Asbury is, is not an Alliance school, but it's one of the schools that a lot of our pastors and missionaries have come from because it's really an interdenominational school for the denominations that came out of the holiness movement. The Salvation Army uses that school a lot, right? And um, our district superintendent, who I just mentioned, is a graduate from Asbury, which is one of the reasons he wanted to go down. And we go into the sanctuary where God is working and written above here in real big letters is holiness unto the Lord, right? And here's just the thing I've been thinking about lately. It's just like, what if in this season, after a pandemic, our religious systems are crumbling, our leaders have failed us, we do not trust our institutions. The church is not on mission. The global political crisis is going to come to a head here eventually. I just wonder in this time, where it can feel like a word from the Lord is rare. I just wonder if God is actually already speaking. And it's from the weak places. It's from the margins. It's from the weak. And I wonder, if God wants to burn it down, would we let him? If it cost us, would we let him? If it meant our kids did things we don't understand, would we bless it? Um... Would, would we allow them to disrupt our systems and our assumptions and our, like, would we let God do something more radical than what we think from those places, right? Because God is turning the world upside down. He's giving us a word. And here's the thing. That word that would burn the church down is also the word that will sustain us through the oncoming crisis. It's also the word that will hold us when everything is falling apart. It's also the word that establishes his kingdom when empire is cracking. It's the word that holds us, right? We're just like a small group of people. Our network's a small group of people. But I think God keeps putting us among the margins, among the poor, among the weak. Because I think he's already put us in proximity to where that word is going to be whispered from children. I'll end with this. Do you know that a lot of our churches in Western Pennsylvania and the Christian Missionary Alliance were planted by women and pastored by women 
And one of the reasons why that story exists here in Western PA, almost unheard of a hundred years ago for churches to be planted and pastored by women, is because a lot of our churches were started by children. Um, and, and like Hannah and Mary, probably because men st oftentimes stay enchanted and seduced by these power structures that God is not interested in, probably because we get seduced by it longer, the women pick up on what God is doing first. And just like Hannah and, and Mary, who noticed it first, coming from boys, that the kingdom was being established upside down, there were women in western Pennsylvania who had eyes to see what God was doing in some of our poor and immigrant communities. And they started to pay attention to the kids. And they started to gather them. And back then it was Sunday school programs. I think like an equivalent today is after school programs. But they started to gather them. And we have churches that still exist in Western PA because kids started them first. I'm telling you, I've spent time in the church playing world now. We're too sophisticated for that. Like, we got to have a logo and something cool and attractive and great preaching and great worship leaders. And then we can have a church. Like, we don't, we don't, like, look at things like a group of kids gathering in a housing project and think, oh, that might be the church emerging, right? That might be the church. Like, maybe the kids get it first, right? Um, but I am so pleased to tell you that I've, for the last few months, been hanging out in communities like Terenum and Duquesne and Homewood and Homestead and McKeesport and McKees Rocks. And a common thread through all of these communities where we are seeing the church emerge is kids. <laughs> Somehow at the foundation of what God is doing here in Western PA, I think it's so true of our network too. He keeps putting us near the weak. He keeps putting us near people on the margins. He keeps putting us in this, so that when this prophetic word comes, we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.